so for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, my name is uh, Charlie. My wife over there, Haley, uh, and uh, and Becky. We are all three tag teaming. One of us is going to take a point, but we'll all jump in uh, different uh, different weeks. And so uh, today we're going to very simply just go over some uh, some of the setup that happens in Exodus one and two. Um, we're only doing a couple of chapters a week. Um, at this point, so uh, we'll we'll tell you at the end uh, what you can be reading during the week if you want to follow along or do some uh, some extra um, uh, extra reading stuff with us. Um, so uh, today, uh, Exodus one and two really uh, just kind of set the stage for what happens uh, in the rest of um, of the book of Exodus. Um, one thing I I, I want to point out and just something that I think we forget sometimes is we're reading the same thing that Jesus would have read as a young man. Everything that happens in the New Testament, sometimes we think of this division of the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. This is exactly what Jesus would have been reading as a, uh, as a young man, and even when he goes into the synagogue and uh, reads from some of the scrolls during his time and during his, uh, his ministry. But if you want to think about the Old Testament in a couple of different pieces, a couple of different parts, uh, we have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and uh, Deuteronomy. All of those kind of serve as the, uh, the five seasons of a TV series, if you will. Uh, one book leads into the next one. Uh, that one builds on what just happened and what's coming next, uh, and so on and so forth. But if you run it from Genesis to Kings... Uh, that's really a story that runs from creation all the way to the exile in Babylon. Um, it's kind of part one of the Old Testament, and then everything after that uh, is getting back to uh, where they were, establishing the nation of Israel uh, and the different kingdoms uh, and those sorts of things. So um, that's kind of where we are. We're at the very beginning of the, uh, uh, of the story of the people of God. <clears throat> so depending on who you ask, um, uh, somewhere between 1600 and 1200 B.C., uh, is where people put this part of the story. It's kind of hard to pin down, uh, in, uh, and it truly depends on which commentary you read or which expert you, um, uh, you choose to uh, look at. But Moses, Joshua, and the Exodus happened somewhere in that 400-year uh, uh, period. This is called the Book of Moses, one of the books of Moses, uh, though someone else probably wrote it down. He just had a really good memory um, or something like that. So uh, Becky really challenged us last week to read uh, to read this with the lens of uh, kind of these three questions. Uh, the first is, who is God? We're learning, we're learning about the character of God. Uh, what is God like, uh, or what kind of God is God, especially in relation to the other nations and how they would have viewed uh, their gods? Uh, and then finally, um, as for the people of God, who will you serve? Today we're kind of, uh, in, in Exodus 1 and 2, we're going to look at this question of where is God? What happens in this period in between Genesis and where we pick up the story in Exodus? Where is God, uh, and what is his involvement going to be like? Um, cool. Stop here. Any other opening thoughts? Doing great. <laughs> Thanks. Sure. <laughs> All right. So uh, if I were to ask you guys uh, some of the biggest events that happened in 1623, anything immediately come to mind? That's really impressive. <laughs> we'll never ask a history major. Yeah, he, he asked me that question this morning, and I was like, well, the Renaissance was still in play, the Reformation was going on, 
Um, you also have the Age of Exploration beginning to really get going. Um, the United States was already being colonized by multiple countries. Like, what, what else would you like to know? It's not a stupid question. I'm just curious. <laughs> I mean, there aren't too many um, there aren't too many series or books being uh, released about the 1600s uh, necessarily. But um, if you can think uh, in terms of today uh, till since then, uh, it's 400 years. Uh, 400 years have passed since 1623. Uh, I'm really surprised that nobody said that Duke Maximilian of Bavaria became uh, monarch of the Palts uh, back then. Thought that would have been a highlight for somebody. Uh, the uh, symbol manufacturer Zildjian started commercial manufacturing in Turkey uh, around this time. Uh, the second Thanksgiving also occurred in Plymouth, Massachusetts uh, in 1623. So um, other than that, if I wouldn't have told you anything, 400 years, we don't really have a, uh, a reference point for that. None of us, um, uh, unless we do a lot of digging, could trace our ancestry back towards then uh, or, uh, or whatnot. Nothing immediately comes to mind, right? Uh, the reason I bring that up is because by the time we get to this part uh, where there's a new Pharaoh, uh, there are 400 years between this Pharaoh and when Joseph brought, the, uh, brought his family, only 70 of them, into the land of Egypt. If you remember, Joseph uh, had a famine going on. Um, uh, the, the land was, uh, uh, Joseph helped prepare Egypt for surviving the famine and uh, Joseph brought his entire family over. So 400 years from the time that Joseph dies, um, all the way to this new pharaoh. So this new pharaoh doesn't really care, right? Uh, this new pharaoh does not, um, uh, does not care about who Joseph was. He doesn't care about what Joseph did. He just knows that there are a whole bunch of people in his land now that present a threat to his kingdom. Um, so though we are you know, somewhat largely unaffected by the things that happened 400 years ago, this new pharaoh recognized, I've got a problem on my hands. Um, if you look at this uh, in, uh, in verse 6, uh, it says, Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land filled with them. There's uh, a lot of Genesis 1 um, language here where, um, you know, God told all of creation, not just Adam and Eve, but all of creation to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, and that's exactly what they're doing. Um, you know, another thing that happened is... Be even, even when Joseph was alive, he didn't eat with the Egyptians. He ate separately, and they lived in a separate land in Goshen. And so they, they didn't intermix, and there wasn't, you know, the... So, so there are complete separate people in this land. Mm -hmm. They didn't yep. come in and mingle. Yep. And there wasn't, uh, there wasn't oppression necessarily early on. They were just people who right. lived there. I think so often we think there was 400 years of slavery that were going on. Well, not really. Um, it wasn't until Pharaoh recognized what was going on that he said, all right, now we have to do something about this. And so they're going to work for us. They don't get to just stay in our land uh, for free from this point on. Um, uh, I thought this was interesting, too. If you just Google something like Egypt in uh, Moses' time, these are some of the pictures that I think we all would see in a history book or uh, be familiar with as well. Um, this is, if you're, I'm not a geography person. Okay, I'll just put that, put that out there right now. I, I don't understand any of this type stuff. But uh, this just sort of puts it in a context where, uh, where things were happening. Um, uh, going from here, they'll eventually go... Uh, down this way, around Mount Sinai, do a couple of laps, and then eventually go 
uh, up this way into the uh, uh, into the promised land. But um, right here is where most of this uh, most of this action is happening, especially in the um, uh, in the first few chapters. So, um, what? Um, Uh, give me some examples. What do you think life was like for um, uh, not just the not just the Egyptians, but for the Jews during this time? What, what was going on in these four hundred years, or around this time? Might have been cool waking up to a uh, to the pyramids just kind of in your view. Yeah, might have been neat. Yeah. Yep. I think for the most part they were uh, pretty uh, pretty content. I mean, first of all, happy to be alive, happy to have a, a place to live with food when they came from no food. So I think there was they, they were fairly comfortable in the situation. Mm -hmm. that, just later on, as the oppression rose, not all of them actually wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe, it, for the most part, for most of that time, they were fairly content with who they were and where they were and what they had. I think it's a good point. Uh, maybe a time of affluence, a time of peace, uh, where if, if time passes pretty quickly, especially in, in historical records, you'd think, oh yeah, probably not much happened around that time. Uh, so maybe not a whole lot of conquests or, uh, or battles or anything. Yeah. And part of Pharaoh's problem was not just the concern about the military or the you know, joining their enemies part of the oppression, but, but maybe jealousy about how well they were doing. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. History man? <laughs> See, now you gave me the cheat sheet. <laughs> uh, we got to get into, you know, the common era before that's really my specialty, Middle Ages. <clears throat> This have been mine, mine starts about 1790. So. <laughs> there you go. But this has been Bronze Age developments in mm -hmm. weaponry and chariots and um, yeah. yeah, kind of, kind of changed thinking. society quite a bit. Is that mm -hmm. they were probably also very skilled militarily because why, why the mention of the fact that he would, he feared that, he, that yeah. the Israelites would rise up and join their enemies? Like there had to be something about them that would make him fear that. Like if they were just you know all sheep herders and just very peaceful people. Then there's not as much fear there. They had there's something about them had to evoke that fear that they would, and not just their sheer numbers, but something about um, either their weaponry or even their skill in battle um, probably brought that fear about. I'd say so. What do you think Egypt's reputation was at this at this point? Yeah, certainly known as being very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Yeah, probably the most powerful nation of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would have been the, the empire of the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yep. and wealthy. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Yep, they were a little bit ahead of everybody else, mm -hmm. for sure. Especially when you get to the New Testament, you start to see the parallels between what the children of Israel went through in, it, in Egypt versus what uh, the Jews were going through at the time of the Romans. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about two very large uh, powerful nations who are uh, playing a part in the story of God, not only 
because of their uh, prominence and, and their dominance, but uh, because of what they, um, uh, what they do essentially to the people of God and how God delivers them uh, in the midst of all of that. Egypt was the recipient of the blessing that had been given to Abraham. Uh, those that bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. Um, and, and in this time, they're uh, multiplying and becoming um, very, very numerous, which was another blessing of Abraham. And so even though we don't necessarily see God's name mentioned, it's clear that God's promise and God's blessing is being fulfilled um, in them during this 400 years. Absolutely. You also think about, too, as a, as a nation, the people of Israel, for 400 years, they have nothing written. They don't have a written history. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have a scroll. Uh, sure, they probably borrowed some or purchased some papyrus, and maybe it's happening in small parts uh, as uh, tribes or as families and all that. But more often than not, they're just telling the story over and over and over again. So imagine being a kid. Uh, at this time, and hearing your parents talk about something that happened 400 years ago, and you're going, what does that, what does that have to do with me? Like, we're, we got it made. We're just chilling in Egypt, right? Like, uh, this guy, Abraham, there's some promise that we're supposed to be experiencing. Maybe this is it, you know? Um, so I often think about that, uh, that too, in this initial setup, that we still don't have the Ten Commandments yet. We still don't have God uh, saying, these are the most important things. It's literally just saying, hey, just remember who God is. Remember who God is. Remember that you're people of the promise over and over and over again for generation and generation and generation. Something really, really interesting. Um, that's a good point. Um, so I think we would also be remiss if we didn't uh, focus in on some of these other, other details here. Okay, so let me go down here. Uh, a new king came in. Uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to find the names. Where are the names? Ah, there we go. Okay, so... Verse 15 right here. <clears throat> King of Egypt uh, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were uh, Shifra and Pua. Family names, anybody? No? Okay. Um, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not, I should put that up here, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And they answered, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. Uh, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So, uh, and I think this is huge right here. God was kind to these midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because these midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. 
something that you read in literature, especially if you study literature professionally, uh, the people who are named versus the people who are not named. Yeah. We don't know Pharaoh's name. We really don't know Pharaoh's daughter's name. Uh, we don't know some of these really important people who are named, and yet we know the names of these two midwives. Starting off, they're the first two people named in this uh, in this book, other than Joseph and his family. Uh, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't say uh, that that's just a really important detail here. Um, that we're intentionally leaving out the names of some of the people who, in the end, don't really matter. And I don't, I don't mean that disparagingly, but. Uh, we call importance, uh, we call attention to the things that are important. And these two people, uh, these two women, are insanely important to this uh, entire story. And a lot of women are not mentioned by name in the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, it's only later on. Yeah, it's only later on that we find out Moses' dad's name. It's not initially, it just says, uh, just, dynamic. Right. Uh, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Later on, we find out their names, but initially it's just like, hey, this is the part of the story we want you to focus on. Well, even that before that, when it tells about who came, which of Abraham's descendants uh, came, mm -hmm. it says that 66 people came, and that doesn't include their wives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> they're really not named. They're not even counted yep. as the people who came. I think one of the other things that you have to keep into context, too, is that the Egyptians actually thought of their pharaoh as a god. Yes. Um, and so you have this whole element of these two women lying and defying mm. this, this man who is seen as a god. Um, not just a human being, but as a deity to these people. And so you kind of have to think about, like, what would the consequences of that have been? Like, there would have been major consequences, not only just from Pharaoh, but <coughs> societal as well. If that had gotten out, there would have not only been punishment for these two women, but also for their families, um, even extended family, because obviously God blesses them with families of their own. But there would have been major consequences. This was not something, you know, just to be kind of like frivolously looked at as like, oh, they lied to him, they, you know, they, they deceived him or whatever. This was a really big choice that these two women made, and they knew, they knew that their lives were on the line by making. Mm -hmm. <coughs> that, I was going to say that <coughs> what we were saying a minute ago all those things that made the Egyptians uncomfortable, we didn't mention that part mm -hmm. but that may have been one of the major parts was that worship of worship of God mm -hmm. or remembering God mm -hmm. and, and, and their connection to God versus mm -hmm. that so I think now we're beginning to see that, <coughs> that was part of the, whole, the big split yeah. scenario yep. yeah. well and it's, it's interesting too <coughs> Pharaoh's fear of what these people might do mm -hmm. led to his ultimate downfall. Um, but Shipra and Hua, their, their fear or their respect or their awe of God led to salvation. Mm -hmm. they, 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 uh, and then um, Moses' uh, sister and mother and adopted mother uh, will all also lead to salvation as well. Mm -hmm. So all these characters were kind of flipping the tables. Mm -hmm. um, in defiance yes. of, mm -hmm. of this man who is seen as a god. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you, do you think there's a, a, almost a point in maybe reaffirming this fear that Pharaoh has when he hears a bunch of midwives say, hey, these people are not like Egyptians. Right. And they're so, they're they're so, so strong. Yeah. Yeah. And so. strong and awesome. Like, yeah. they finally got this, like, I want to just, like, 
Yeah. Um, I mean, he uses the word shrewd, like we must handle them shrewdly. In other words, if they're able, if they're just, you know, if they're able to deliver their baby so fast, and they they're they're clever, right? So we've got to use just as much shrewdness, cleverness to handle them. So now it's like, well, we won't wait for them to be. They can be born, but now we're going to find another way. So we're going to get rid of all of the male babies, and and no, the girls can live, but all of the male babies are now going to be thrown into the river. Which is kind of an interesting uh, segue into this question, like, why did Pharaoh only want to kill the boys? Because after all, the... This is workforce. um, Yeah. Absolutely. He was afraid of an uprising, and yet by killing all the boys, he's depleting his future workforce. Mm -hmm. Right? I also think it's interesting that he's focused on killing the males, but it's always the women who are subverting. Uh (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Way more dangerous. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Moral of the story, don't underestimate a woman. <laughs> um, I also want to make the connection, too, here, because this is the first time we start to see the authority of another nation uh, exercised against the people of God. Um, if you get into the New Testament, you start to read, especially in Romans and even Jesus' words about giving to Caesar what is Caesar and giving to God what is God's. There are so many times in uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament where God says, live peacefully in the land. Uh, that you reside in because uh, you're going to have that same opportunity to have foreigners in your land someday later on. Though we can't necessarily say that defying authority is always the right uh, course of action, I do think it's important to recognize that um, these women are uh, trying to live peacefully under the land unless it directly conflicts uh, with the ways of God. I think Jesus would have said, says the same thing when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but also give to God what is God's. Both of those things work in tension. And I think for us, uh, that's a tension we feel today. How do we uh, abide by the laws of the land, um, but what happens when it comes up, up against something that we know to be true and something that we as believers um, follow? So um, it's interesting here that the women are just kind of openly defying and then kind of get around it a little sneakily, but, um, you know, it's the way that God accomplishes his purposes, too. I'm not saying go lie to your (laughs) boss or anything like that. (laughs) Yep. All right. There's this thing. Okay, so uh, going into chapter two, now we meet the main uh, character. Before we go any further, um, from your VBS days or personal study or whatever, name some things that you know about the character of Moses without, without reading all of this stuff. Like just your first impression. What do you think of when Moses comes on the scene? Reluctant. Mm-hmm. Reluctant? A little awkward. Awkward? Mm-hmm. He had a temper. He had a temper? Sure did. He's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Soft spoken. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny, but he's he's the youngest mm-hmm. of his siblings. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. He's got a brother and a sister, Aaron and Miriam. Mm-hmm. He's the baby. Simultaneously, the most important Jew Hebrew that ever lived, according to you know the New Testament, the way they talk about Moses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, without Moses, probably the nation of Israel gets wiped out. Mm -hmm. Or at least forgotten and becomes, you know, acclimated or assimilated. 
Um, I think it's cool uh, here that we see a bunch of uh, a bunch of details. So we know um, we know what happens as far as uh, he's about three months old when he goes down the river. I always thought he was like newborn and then yeah. you know yeah. goes down the river. No, he's 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 got some girth to him probably at this point. Like that's a that's got to be a I hefty basket. I thought it was really interesting that she was <clears throat> able to hide him for three months. Like he was quiet. Those of you that have had newborns, I, were your newborns quiet for the first three months? Because our, ours were not. So I guess that just translated into their older years as well. Yep. But I'm like, that's really impressive that she was able to hide a newborn baby for three months. I promise I'm not skipping over all this. Um, so how, how, did, how did the Israelites remain... I mean, if boys were being thrown in the river and killed, what? How did they? How did they last that long? Well, I think this was pretty quickly after that edict was made because he has a brother who's only three years older than he is who's alive. So maybe there were a lot of mothers Probably well, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if Pharaoh's own daughter is subverting his rules. Yeah. Probably pretty quickly, this, this would be something that wasn't enforced. Yeah. yeah. It was hard to enforce. Yeah, right, I have a feeling right. everybody was kind of like, nah, we're good. Well, but I think you see a very similar thing with, um, if you look at even the Age of Exploration, right? You have uh, the Incas and the Mayans and the Aztecs who are incredibly powerful empires in their time. And the Spanish come in and they begin to conquer and their resources can't match the guns of the Spanish. They can't match the diseases that are brought over by the Spanish conquistadors. And so they, even though they are very powerful and their numbers at one point were massive, there is a difference in, like, because we ask the same question, why didn't they just fight back? Why didn't they, why did they just allow these people to conquer them even when they're being oppressed? Even when they have the numbers to really fight back, at some point, you're kind of like, well, this is the way that it's always been. I just don't think that we can. Like, There's also religious aspects of this in terms of the Incas and the Mayans and the Aztecs because their mentality is if the Spanish were able to, able to conquer them and defeat their gods that they believed in, then their god must be the true god. So there is kind of that element playing into a lot of these ancient civilizations as well. I guess my mind was thinking, okay, did they dress a lot, all the little boys like little girls? Or <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I mean, really, that may have been mm -hmm. how they hit them. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yep, very well could be. Mm -hmm. yeah. I just think this verse is so telling uh, in verse 20. God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. So even in the midst of oppression, God is still rewarding the faithfulness of these people who say, yeah, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. We're not going to follow those things because that's not the way of, uh, of our God. Do we have an idea of the number? I mean, like, obviously, it started with 70 people over the course of 400 years. Are we even, like, are we 10,000 people? There's, there's a lot of different numbers that the book of Exodus throws out, um, and they seem to be pretty hyperbolic, um, because that, that would be a massive number of people wandering around the wilderness. There wouldn't have been resources and things for right. for that. Um, and the, the number changes uh, pretty regularly. Uh, and so the short answer is we're not we're not entirely sure. It goes in that Eastern mindset we talked about last time. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. There was a number. That's right. Yep. 
And we don't know who all they're counting, whether they're counting boys above a certain age or whether they're counting mm -hmm. everybody. And so it, um, it's hard to know. Okay. Uh, so now we meet Moses. Here he is. Um, something I, I, I thought most of, um, I thought similarly to, to several of you who said, yeah, timid, shy, uh, kind of reserved, kind of reluctant. Uh, definitely a work in progress. Like needs some needs some encouragement. Needs some um, uh, needs some ushering along and whatnot. Um, but Moses's character in the first few verses is actually pretty decisive. Um, uh, he's uh, he is pretty hasty. He is a little impulsive, uh, especially in the way that he deals with uh, this Egyptian who is uh, beating a Hebrew. But uh, there's another uh, there's another part down here. Um, uh, let's see. Yep, right here, when he, when he flees to Midian, uh, he had 700. They came to draw water uh, and fill the troughs, but the shepherds came along and drove them away, uh, trying to stir up some trouble. Uh, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. I mean, this is a man of action. You know, this is not the same man, I don't think, that we, we see at the burning of the bush where he's like, ah, oh, you know, I can't really speak. You know, like, why, why would you want me to do that? Uh, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to convince him to do this type of stuff. So, though he may not have been a man of words, he definitely was a man of action. He seems to be really passionate about justice. The times that you mm -hmm. see him take action or when he sees something that is clearly wrong. Yeah, well, I think you need to go back to verses 11 and 12. So, if you go back to verses 11 and 12, so it says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. This is the part that I always miss, is that I don't, th so what happens is after um, the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, in the basket, and then Miriam runs back and gets her mother to be the wet nurse, right? <clears throat> Moses goes back and lives with them. And then Jacobed, when he's, you know, weaned and he's grown up a little bit, he then goes back to live with, with Pharaoh's daughter, right? So, like, he, the speculation is how long did he actually live amongst the Israelites for it to say that he considered them his own people? Like, this isn't something that, like, again, referencing Prince of Egypt, like, if you've seen the movie Prince of Egypt, it comes as a massive shock to Moses that he's an Israelite. Like, he is completely and totally blindsided by this notion. But that's not actually what Scripture points out. Yep. And so I think the thing here is that he does feel this sense of justice because these are his people. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the idea that we talk about with our, our boys all the time. Like, you know, I can be mean to my brother, but nobody else better be mean to my brother. You know, like, you, you're going to take up for your own. Like, we protect our own and we protect our family. And something that it pointed out in a devotional study that I was looking at, it says, what, if you reference Acts 7.25, so if you go, I'll flip over in my Bible, but if you have your Bible, if you go to Acts 7.25, it says, Moses assumed, the, the verse before it in, in 24, says, during this visit, he saw an Egyptian mistreating a man of Israel, so Moses came to his defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. 25, Moses assumed his brothers would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. Hmm. So he's thinking he's like the Avenger, right? Like he's the Avengers, and he's going to, you know, come in and rescue everybody. And the next thing you know, they're putting laws around the Avengers team, and they can't be the Avengers anymore. Okay, so Marvel reference. All right, so... Wrong demographic. <laughs> right. So now he's having to flee because what's Pharaoh going to do? He's going to kill him. 
Because I think he, Pharaoh realizes, oh, he's one of them. Mm-hmm. Even though we raise him, he's one of them. So now he's got it out for Moses. So Moses is now going to flee. Just like Jesus, too. His own people don't realize what he's doing because uh, when he goes out to uh, break up this fight between uh, two Hebrews, they're like, uh, excuse me, who do you think you are? Didn't you go, like, kill that Egyptian the other day? And he's like, oh, junk. Now i got to get out of here. <clears throat> here's, so. a, here's something that I think is really neat in there. Where, why did he feel that sense of, I'm the one, obviously he... The story of his being alive had to be taught by his mother. Mm-hmm. And God had to be taught yeah. by the one that was taking care of him mm-hmm. day in and day out. So, you know, there's nothing in there that says God spoke to him one day and said, okay, you're, at this point, not yet. Yep. So it just. His mother knew she had one So I, I'm just saying the power of that teaching. The power of that example, mm-hmm. the power of pouring into him day in and day out, but not only just, you know, but but helping him to realize God is the one that's floating in this basket in this scenario saved your life. There must be a purpose to your life. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, we've we've talked about the Bible Project, and I highly recommend listening to the podcast if you can. But but they talk about how um, Torah, especially, but um, really just the way that um, that Jews and, and the Hebrews would have read scripture would be really, really immersive. It would have been meditation literature, something that you would have read um, read through multiple times every year. And so when there's little lines, little sayings, um, you would know, oh, that links back to here. So there's all these hyperlinks. And chapter one and chapter two are full of hyperlinks that pull you back to Genesis. So it's the creation story. It's mm-hmm. be fruitful and multiply. It's uh, we have, yes, we have the, the Pharaoh coming in as the the shrewd, crafty snake in this scenario. That word shrewd is used to, to talk about the, the snake as well. And so it's setting up who who is who and who's making which decisions. And then the basket that he's in with tar and pitch, those are the exact same words. The, the, the basket is the same word as ark. Yeah. Uh, and so there's this narrative of, oh, we know who he's going to be. He's going to be Noah. He's going to be the one that's going to save uh, this humanity yeah. from these decreation forces of, of death um, through, through the water. Um, and that's not just true in Genesis and Exodus. That, that is the narrative of all of Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. there, there is this creation, and then there is God trying to... Um, to get back to that state of togetherness that existed before the fall. And it seems like people in every generation, in in the Exodus, in the Kings, in uh, the book of Job, in Jonah, uh, in Jesus' time, there's all these references to to these Messiah-like figures um, that are going to bring things back to creation. And it, it makes you think, how in my life, what, what is going on in my life? Where, what are the creation and the decreation forces in my life? And what, who am I going to serve? What role am I going to play in this? Am I, going to be, am I going to believe the crafty serpent? Or am I going to believe what God has said is true about me? It's not just a story that took place one time. It's a story that takes place over and over and over again in history and in every single person's life. So is not the wilderness journey a picture of life itself? Absolutely. Yep. To the promised land. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. So that's, yep. that's that story repeated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to return to your question, too, about, like, why did Moses do this in the first place? 
if he's growing up in the in two different worlds, imagine the two different messages that he's hearing. Yeah. For the children of Israel, or the people, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, as they're they're called in, in this context, uh, this is the first time they've experienced this type of oppression or this type of authority exercised over them. And so Moses, as a uh, as a Hebrew, and I have to believe he's acutely aware, he does not look like an Egyptian, <laughs> right? Uh, they look very different than he does, though he is growing up with the affluence in the palace and all those things. But what conversations is he hearing in the palace, too? Is he hearing all of these plans to, uh, you know, continue to oppress these people and him feeling this tension of like, well, wait a second, they're not that, they're not that bad. Like, they actually make really good food, and uh, they're really hospitable, and they're, they're not a threat at all. And so this tension that he definitely feels in hearing the vitriol of the Egyptian palace and the Egyptian officials uh, versus his own people. I'm sure that had something to do with uh, his sense of justice of going, hey, this isn't right over here. And so I need to make sure that I'm looking out for these people. Maybe he knew his, his position, uh, so to speak, being in uh, Pharaoh's palace to, to go, well, I have other means and I have education and training that I can use for the betterment of these people. It's probably just pure speculation, but I have to think that that's somehow driving him and his sense of justice to go, there's something off here. There's something wrong. Not only are his people experiencing this oppression for the first time, but he's hearing about it on the other end and going, I know what they're up to, and I know that they're wrong. Yeah. I also think, too, this is the first time that we see Moses' unchecked emotions on display. <clears throat> and we see it again. We see it with him <clears throat> slamming the commandments down because he's angry about what he sees when he comes down from the mountain. We see it when he hits the rock. Um, and we also have to keep in mind, when it says that Moses has grown, if we're talking in terms of Jewish tradition, he could still be a teenager here. And if we know anything about teenagers, they run on raw emotion. Okay, like I teach middle school. I live in it day in and day out. Okay, so like his emotions are getting the best of him. And, but he wants to do the right thing. It's one of those where like, did he make the right choice even though he wanted to do the right thing? Like, and he's still a teenager, so I think some of that awkwardness that we see with him is just, he's, he's young, and he's still trying to figure out who he is, and what he wants to do, and what he thinks is the right thing, and would you as a teenager walk up to, you know, the king and be like, so these Israelites, they're actually good people, like, the Pharaoh's a very intimidating character in, in, to him, right? Yep. But it does tell us how old he is. He's 40. He's 40 when he leaves Egypt, and he's he's 80 when he comes back mm -hmm. and faces. It does say his age. There you go. Uh, it's, it's later. Oh, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, last thing uh, we'll look at is just this part about the nation. We have these... Uh, this great back and forth between the individual story of Moses uh, and the cosmic story of the people of God, and we get a very full picture of that and how they work together. Um, uh, so this king who makes all these rules dies, and so uh, the new king who comes in is probably just going to carry on a lot of what the old king does. Uh, there's these people, keep them down. Um, you know, they're a, um, uh, they're a resource for us. Um, and so I, um, based on the text, the, the slavery and the oppression, it's getting worse, and the people are crying out. Um, by the way, no, I noticed it says their cry for help, um, uh, they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Um, maybe they're not necessarily crying out to God, but they are crying out for help. 
right? And then it says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked on the Israelites and was uh, concerned about them. So God just doesn't go, oh yeah, I got you. Don't, don't worry about it. He's, he's actively involved in this process. This is not a God who just kind of sits back like a watchmaker and lets everything kind of play out because he set them in motion. He's active in this process. Uh, he's involved in the story of these people, and he's going to do something about it. Um, how do you think these words in verses um, 24 and 25 would have been comforting to the Israelite people to read this later? When they get back in this situation mm-hmm. several times over the next several hundred thousand years, mm-hmm. and it's Babylon, it's Persia, it's Rome, it's, it mm-hmm. just keeps happening to them. But it's also a reminder that God hears the cries of the oppressed. And so when Israel begins oppressing other people, it's a reminder to them as well Mm -hmm. uh, of how God will respond. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. right. So consider this like episode one of season two of the Torah. Uh, So next week, uh, Haley's going to talk about Exodus 3. No, Becky. Sorry. Hi, Becky. Uh, Exodus 3 and 4. Yes. If you're reading ahead, Exodus three and four. Hope to see you back next week. Thanks for being here. Thanks for thanks for the discussion as well.